All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hello everybody and if you regularly follow Making the Argument you're probably wondering why didn't we have a podcast last Thursday? Well the topic of today's podcast is actually going to explain why and that's all coming up next on Making the Argument with Nick Freitas where we make the arguments to defend a free society. So as most of you know have been following this I'm currently in legislative session here in Richmond, Virginia. And we had something of a blow up on the floor of the House of Delegates last Wednesday. And that is when a colleague of mine, Delegate Don Scott, got up and proceeded to question everything from the Christianity of the new governor of Virginia to subtly and not so subtly accusing all of us of racism and bigotry. And I wanna show you that floor speech right now. The governor, the governor-elect at the time, he came in this chamber with the freshmen who were being trained and taught and, and talked about how we do things on the floor. And the first things that I recall him saying was that he, he had a strong prayer life and that he was praying for everybody. And so far, what I've seen from his day one activities is not someone who is a man of faith, not a Christian, but someone who wants to divide the commonwealth. Someone wants that wants to cause division on this is coming with. I know the truth hurts. Okay. Well, as you can see, Delegate Scott did not hold back. And the bottom line is, is what Delegate Scott was essentially, you know, claiming is not unique in, in the floor debates that we regularly have in the General Assembly. It just isn't. He was a lot more blunt. He was a lot more direct. I would, I would argue that he was a lot more upfront with what he actually believes and what he was claiming about the rest of us. But there's a lot of floor speeches that take place like that. They're just a little bit more subtle at times. And I've been keeping a running tally of the number of times within the General Assembly session that we've essentially either been directly or subtly accused of bigotry, racism, and sexism for the high crime of disagreeing with our Democratic colleagues on policy. So when this speech came out, quite frankly, I was furious. And the behind the scenes component of this is I'm sitting on the floor and I'm watching this and Delegate Tony Wilt is furious. And Delegate Tony Wilt is a really nice guy. But Don Scott at this point is just being incredibly insulting and he's coming very, very close to violating house rules with respect to how inter we interact with one another on the floor. And I'm sitting there watching the speech and all of a sudden I get tapped in the back I'm like, Nick, and I look back and the majority leader goes, go. Because I was mad, he knew I wanted to talk about it. He said, hey, if you want to, go for it. Now again, on the house floor, anybody can get up and, and request a point of personal privilege whenever they want. Uh, but this was essentially, you know, everyone kind of letting us know that we needed to respond to this. So I got up and I said this. I've never got on this floor 
and I've challenged the faith of an elected official because I disagreed with them on policy. I've never gone on this floor, Mr. Speaker, and suggested that the other side of the aisle were racist because they didn't agree with my particular policy positions. I've never suggested they were sexist because they didn't agree with my particular policy positions. But I'm keeping a running tally so far of this session, we're not very far into it, and almost every day, almost every day, someone on the other side of the aisle either gets up and either subtly or comes right out and suggests that if you don't agree with them on policy, well then you're not a Christian, you're a sexist, you're a bigot, you're a racist. But the moment someone actually stands up and says, wait a second, no, I'm not going to accept that. If you want to debate me on the merits of our particular policies, I am happy to have that discussion. But the moment you claim, with no evidence other than we don't agree on a particular policy position, the moment you claim that that makes us racist or sexist or bigoted, Mr. Speaker, I've got news. This was tried during the election cycle. You had a lot of parents coming to their local elected officials asking questions about what was going on in their schools. And the initial response was, oh, it's not there. And then when they saw evidence that it was, based off of what their kids were coming home and saying to them, and they went back and reissued the concern, then they got told, oh, well, then you must be a racist. Because that has been the repeated narrative coming from certain members of the other side of the aisle. And there's been a lot of times where we've sat here politely and just took it. Mr. Speaker, not this time. I'm tired of it. My constituents are tired of it. Because when these claims are made, they're not just made against Governor Yunkin. They're not just made against us. They're made in part against the people that elected to send us here. And I don't know a single person in this chamber that I would define as racist or sexist or bigoted. We have very different ideas about how to get to particular end states where all Virginians can be happy, healthy, prosperous, and free. But just so I'm very clear, will I be nice this session? I would certainly like to be, but I'm not about to sit here and listen to that, Mr. Speaker, and then go home to my constituents and have them ask me, why didn't you stand up and defend us? So let's have a robust policy discussion. But if you're going to question the faith of the intentions of anybody that happens to disagree with you on policy, then you don't get to lecture us on compassion, tolerance, or an open debate. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Now, as you can see, um, I was a little bit upset. In fact, a lot of people that have watched this video have said, hey, I saw the microphone shaking. It's like, yeah, that's right, because I didn't show up that day prepared to give remarks on something like this. We were all witnessing this take place, and I was mad. I was really angry. And a lot of people have kind of assumed that, okay, well, yeah, you were angry because he's sitting there, he's insulting you. No, that's not why I was angry. Yeah, that's frustrating. Yeah, that's, that's you know, nobody likes to hear that. But again, I've, I've been in the military, I've been to combat, a delegate throwing a temper tantrum on the House floor is not exactly going to ruin my whole day. No, what made me mad is that really what's going on here, what has been going on here, is that every time someone gets up and makes this sort of claim, where if you disagree with them on policy, and, and again, the disagreements that we have on here are things like school choice. Well, then they automatically assume that you must be a bad, evil person, a bigot, a racist, a sexist, whatever it is. And they're not just accusing us of that. It's not like this is a personal attack on me. This is an attack on everyone that voted for me, everyone that expects me to come here and advocate on behalf of their principles, their beliefs, and their ideals. And the sort of tactics that Delegate Scott were using were, was not meant to foster a debate, a discussion, or a civil dialogue. It was meant to shut down debate.
It's the idea that if you don't agree with the progressive policy position, then you must be a bad person, right? The only explanation for why you don't agree with more taxes, more government control, more government you know, manipulation of curriculum within our schools is because you're a racist. You're a bad person. And quite frankly, I'm tired of it. My constituents are tired of it. And that's what I was trying to articulate in that floor speech and sending a very strong message that we're not going to take it anymore. That there may have been times where we sat back and said, okay, they're venting or whatever it is. We, we kind of treated our colleagues that, that engaged in this sort of tactic as we're just gonna blow it off and we're gonna take the high ground. Well, guess what? The high ground is not sitting by while someone insults your constituents. The high ground is not standing by while someone maligns, slanders, and lies about what you believe and why you believe it. And at this point, I think it's time for all of us to start standing up and saying, we're not going to take this anymore. If you wanna have a civil policy discussion, we can have that, we're open to that, we want that. We want multiple perspectives, looking at the various problems that we have in society and discussing the various ideas that we can put forth in order to better, to make everybody healthy, uh, happy, healthy, prosperous, and free. But if the moment I disagree with you, you're gonna automatically assume or imply or come right out and say that I'm a bad person without giving any evidence of bigotry, sexism, or racism, but just asserting it because I don't necessarily agree with your approach to the problem, you need to be on notice, that's not happening anymore. I mean, you could do it, but if you think we're gonna sit back and take it, you're wrong, we're not. We're gonna come back, we're gonna articulate what our position is, we're gonna expose the tactics that you're using exactly for what it is, because really what it is, it's a bullying tactic. It's the idea of the bully, and we all recognize this either from what we've experienced growing up in schools, what you might have seen in the workplace, what you might have seen on TV. It's the idea of that person that sits there and picks and prods and pushes around and intimidates. And then the moment someone stands up to them, they're the first one to go crying to an authority figure, claiming to be the victim. Well, you're not. You're not the victim. You're being a bully. If you engage in this sort of tactics, you're being a bully. You are trying to shut down debate, not foster it. You are trying to attack the person rather than trying to actually have a robust policy discussion. And that's over. You wanna do that, do it by yourself because we're not putting up with it anymore and we're going to treat you like the bully that you are. Bottom line. Now I want you to contrast that with a different floor debate we had. And you can go and look this up. It's on our Facebook page. Um, well, it's, it's, on, it's, well it's, it's on social media right now, but you can go and actually look it up at the uh, House page with Legislative Information Services. There was another debate that we were having about the minimum wage. Now, for anybody that's watched this channel, what you know about me is that I think the minimum wage is problematic because of a couple of things. One, I think whenever the government comes in and arbitrarily tries to engage in price fixing, there's negative consequences to it. And especially for minimum wage, and I say this as someone that has worked for minimum wage, if you come in and you tell a young, low-skilled laborer that is trying to build experience, that needs that first job, that you're not allowed to have it because the government has decided that you're not allowed to negotiate your own wage. What you're doing is you're actually tearing away an opportunity from someone that needs it most because the best way for someone to go from minimum wage to making higher wages is by gaining the skills and experience necessary through entering into the workforce. And when you price them out of the market because you tell a business owner that you have to pay $15 an hour and now all of a sudden they've got to make some hard decisions by how many people they're going to employ, how many hours that they're going to get, the people that are hurt by that the most are the people that need the job the most. So I don't think it's fair, I don't think it's compassionate. Well, another colleague of mine, Delegate Sally Hudson, she got up and she debated from a different perspective. And again, I respect where she's coming from. She's an economist, she's an intelligent person, and we went back and forth on various studies and, and analysis of the facts and data in order to arrive at these conclusions. Now, I'm gonna tell you right now, as much as I respect the argument that she was making, I don't think her argument was sufficient to prove her point. 
And she would argue that my argument wasn't sufficient to prove my point. But at the end of the day, the debate was civil. She didn't question my intentions. I certainly didn't question her intentions. For my part, I pointed out that if you're going to create an environment where somebody that wants a job for $13 an hour is now legally not permitted to have it because the government says so, I think that's problematic on a fundamental level. And then when we look at the vast majority of studies conducted within the last 30 years, what we find is, is that raising the minimum wage has a significant effect on employment numbers, especially for the people that need the jobs the most. Again, she would argue that there's data that supports a different theory. Again, it was a civil debate. So we are capable of it. And the other side is capable of it. But what the Democrats are going to have to explain, what the Democrats are going to have to demonstrate, is what do you actually want? Do you want that civil debate to take place? Now, I hope they do. But here's the problem I think they're going to run into. I think there's a reason why they have constantly resorted to the tactics of demonizing their opponent instead of engaging with them. And that's because I don't think their policies work. I think because ultimately they're trying to convince us that the way that we solve most of the problems that we engage with for most of our lives is through more government power. Again, they're offering themselves as elected officials as the solution to your problems. Not you. You're not the solution. They need more of your money. They need more regulations in order to guide what you do and what you can't do. They need more rules, regulations, fees, fines in order to construct society in such a way that they think will produce better results. I'm arguing from the perspective, and most of my colleagues are arguing from the perspective, that no, what you need is a government that's going to provide for the legitimate functions of government, things like providing for the common defense, things like providing for you know, safety within society, but largely leaves you free in order to pursue your own happiness, in order to make your own decisions. Not because anyone will always make the right decisions, but because the more control and power we put in the hands of individuals, the more ability they have to construct a life for themselves that is based off of their hopes, dreams, and ambitions instead of being told what to do or how to do it by a bunch of politicians they're probably never going to meet. And that's why I think when they are willing to step in and engage in the more empirical or logical debate, their debates suffer, their policy positions suffer as a result. And that's why the vast majority of people that I've engaged with floor debates in the House of Delegates, unfortunately, on the other side of the aisle, almost instantly revert to arguments which suggest that if you don't agree with them, you're a bad person. It's not because you might have a different perspective or a different experience. It's because you're a bad person. And if they can do that, they can essentially alienate you from the conversation. And that is not what you do when you are perfectly confident in the policies that you actually advocate for and believe in. So, to Don Scott, I say keep doing what you're doing. Seriously, if that's the way that you're going to advocate, I want you to have a larger bullhorn. Jump up and talk on the floor even more because I'd love to win the next election as well. To Delegate Hudson, I would say thank you. Thank you for having a robust debate. We don't agree, but we kept it civil. And I think regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, you were able to watch that debate and actually hear an accurate representation of the two different perspectives of two different perspectives or positions on an important issue. And then you can come to your own conclusion about which one you think is more convincing. But ultimately, what I would like all of us to consider is this. When we talk about politics, we're talking about government using force in order to achieve its objectives. So if we are going to talk about tolerance, if we are going to talk about live and let live, then we need to understand that the government doesn't ask you to do anything. A lot of these good-sounding policies that are put forward by some of my colleagues on the left might come from the best of intentions. 
But we don't legislate intentions. We write laws. And those laws come with force and the threat of violence. And if your idea is really that good, maybe you should work on convincing people to adopt your policies and ideas as opposed to forcing them through the coercive power of government. I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument. Thank you very much for joining us. Continue to follow along to see all the new exciting things that are going to happen this session. Again, this floor speech ended up on national news all over the country. There's going to be a lot of other things that we discuss and debate during this session that's going to be interest to people not just in Virginia, but all across the country. And this is where you can find out exactly what's going on and get the behind-the-scenes components that you'll never read in the newspaper. I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.